And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today we are excited to have a guest who we've been waiting to have on for a while now. And this guest is really responsible for a large majority of the Reformed podcasts that you see out there today. Well, all right. With that, Onyx, why don't you introduce our guest and tell us a little bit about him? Sure, Matt. Shane Rosenthal is the editor and host for White Horse Inn radio program, in addition to being an editor for the Modern Reformation magazine, and he is also an elder at Christ Presbyterian Church in St. Charles, Missouri. Welcome to the show, Shane. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Thank you very much for, for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. It's, I'm very excited to have you on. Um, uh, like Matt said, uh, you have been an influence uh, uh, to us, and uh, well, especially to me. I've been a big fan of the White Horse Sin, and also uh, the Modern Reformation magazine. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. How long? How long have you been listening to the show? Um, I've been listening to the show for about maybe uh, four years now, but I mean, I think okay. I've listened to every episode from the beginning. <laughs> oh really? Wow! Yeah, you, you've yeah. been raiding the archives. Yeah, <laughs> I was talking with somebody not long ago from England. He was telling me how he was riding his bike through, uh, you know, these twenty-kilometer bike rides, listening to the White Horse Inn. And I asked him, you know, this is like a Facebook conversation. And he said, uh, you know, I asked him what shows did you listen to on your bike ride, and he said. Uh, and he mentioned like three or four shows that I produced when I was in college, you know, 1991. It's weird, you know, getting yep. that kind of feedback that people are, are kind of going back 30 years listening to old stuff. I've been listening to the show all the way since like what, the mid nineties, maybe, um, m- maybe like, wow, maybe the like 94, days. 95 on KKLA. I used to, I used to have, yeah. I used to sit yeah. up actually in my bed and I used to have my little like radio it was like what these called ghetto blasters back then, right? And I used to put my cassette tape in. Yeah. And right. um, it was like what nine o'clock in the evening, I believe, in, in L.A. Nine right. o'clock on Sunday yep. nights. And yep. uh, I looked forward to it all the time, actually. 
Yeah, those were the days we used to we used to drive to up together to Glendale from Anaheim, and then we would come back, and it was kind of a frat party when we, you know, we had some of our uh, friends. So every time we uh, we we were done with the show, we'd just kind of hang out for three or four hours, and uh, it was kind of like this this uh, informal talk and banter with uh, theologians, which was a blast. That's awesome. So Shane, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we move forward? So I was uh, not raised in the Christian faith. Uh, I was uh, uh, adopted by a Jewish stepfather when I was in uh, kindergarten or so. So I was raised in the Jewish faith, uh, though I'm not biologically Jewish. Bar mitzvah at age 13, uh, studied you know Judaism. But by the third or fourth grade, I kind of had checked out. I thought religion was kind of a you know made up thing. Somebody uh, made up the stories that you find in the Old Testament. There was no parting of the Red Sea. It's just it's fiction, yeah. and uh, but you, religion is just something you do because it's part of your family. It's more culture than it is theology. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I get, when I was in high school, uh, just when I graduated high school, I began reading and talking to others about. Uh, philosophical worldview questions, and I ended up um, finding that there were some interesting questions that I had never thought about and began doing some reading, even in the the New Testament. And I began asking rabbis interesting questions, uh, like I never knew that there was a relationship between Judaism and Christianity, and I I never heard that there was a Messiah. I always had been told that, you know, Jesus was Jewish, and that kind of solves the, the the question for me. You know, people talk to you about Jesus, and I would remind them what I heard. Hey, did you know that Jesus was Jewish? And therefore, you should be in my camp. <laughs> right. But I didn't know that that Judaism had a, lo- a high strain of um, thinkers in its tradition that emphasized the Messiah and redemption and the God-man, etc. So... When I began reading about that, I talked to rabbis about this, and I, and I remember talking to one rabbi in particular, and I said, you know, what do you do with passages like um, Psalm 22, they've pierced my hands and my feet? And he said, well, I don't know, maybe it's bows and arrows. Uh, I wasn't convinced. <laughs> but the other one was uh, Micah 5.2, uh, which is uh, that out of Bethlehem shall come the one whose origins are from old, from everlasting, and... And he said, well, basically what this text is saying is that the Messiah will be related to King David, who was uh-huh. born in Bethlehem. And so even then, I'd only been a Christian for a couple of months, but I said, whether or not that's what the text says, if that is what the text is saying, how are you going to prove that today after the temple's been destroyed and all the genealogical documents are, you know, we don't have them. And how are you going to prove that the Messiah today is related to King David? He said, hmm, that's an yep. interesting problem. <laughs> anyway, he did give me some books that were, that you know, were difficult for me to explain over time. You know, uh, I was able to answer some of the objections. But initially, I, I just found that uh, the world of Christianity opened up, you know, in a way that I'd never seen it before. And I kept reading and I found uh, within a couple of years... Uh, Reformed theology, Reformation theology. I landed at a Reformed Episcopal church with a Michael Horton and a Kim Riddleberger. And then I was really discipled into uh, substantive, uh, you know, Christianity with a historical tradition, liturgy. Um, 
before that, I was in the Calvary Chapel movement for a couple of years. And so I kind of was able to contrast the shall reforms without a lot of discipleship and versus, you know, more substantive reformational forms. So that's kind of the short story of who I am and how I came into this weird tradition. That's great. <laughs> it's funny because we have a similar background, obviously, growing up in Judaism. And I actually was saved through the ministry of Calvary Chapel as well. Hmm. I was baptized by Chuck Smith. How about you? Um, I was actually baptized by Pastor Gary Ruff at Calvary Chapel, La Cunada of the Foothills. But I do remember Pastor Chuck, um, and we, used, we always used to joke about Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. We used to call it Costa Mecca. <laughs> That's a good way, to des- <laughs> yeah. good way to describe it. So, uh, Shane, in, in regards to your experience, uh, then uh, moving on with from the background that you just explained. So you um, met up with Horton and Riddle Barger. They discipled you. You've, uh, you explained how you have the, the experienced the more substantive uh, Christianity where the mm-hmm. reformed, uh, the reformed uh, understanding of it. So when, how did you get involved in the white horse in radio program? Uh, how did you become the executive director and host of that program? And, so basically 1987 was the year that I met Mike and Kim and it was only uh I think in 1988 Mike and I traveled to Europe and you know a reformation tour and we were even we even stayed in Cambridge for a week and I have pictures hanging out with Mike right there at King's College where the white, the original White Horse Inn Tavern stood although at the time we weren't even that creating a radio show wasn't even on our radar uh, but by 1989 or so, I started volunteering for this organization that he had started at Biola. It was a club at the time, Christians United for Reformation. And they would get people like J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul to come speak. Uh, but it was a little more than, uh, you know, a Biola, you know, student club. And they had a newsletter called Modern Reformation. And within a year after that, I, because all the other college students had kind of moved on, I was the only guy left. Uh, so the volunteer went up, climbed the ladder pretty quickly and became the executive director. And in uh, er, the early, early 1990, Mike had published his book, The Agony of Deceit. So I was doing some, a lot of work uh, with promoting that and organizing uh, Mike's schedule and, uh, you know, heading off, you know, getting the organization uh, a conference booth at NRB. But we also started doing some grant writing, Mike and I, and asking people to fund this larger organization that would have that would change the the organization to uh, a legitimate five hundred one c three with a full magazine and a radio show and um, you know enough staff to have you know or, or as a place that could have a, an office with a staff, et cetera. So um, and that. You know, our prayers were answered in the middle of the of that first year. So we officially started our first uh, pilot episode of the White Horse in in September of 1990, and then we first started our uh, regular uh, series. A regular, uh, we then we started our actual first broadcast on KKLA in November of 1990. So basically coming up here pretty soon on, um, depending on when this airs, uh, on 30 years. Wow. Congratulations. 
That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, so during the, the show, the program itself, what was the, the main, uh, not, well, I guess not the main topic, but what was, uh, what were the topics in, in the beginning of the show and uh, how did the topics change and why did the topics change? Was it because of current affairs or, 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 or some other reason? Yeah, we mostly were um, focusing on things like uh, guilt, grace, gratitude in those early, those were the first three shows. Uh, we focused on Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, we focused a lot on the difference between justification and sanctification, indicative, imperative, law, gospel, kinds of themes. Um, and very early on, we also had a, a series of shows that was very popular called uh, Off to the Circus, where we talked about the silliness of contemporary evangelical thought with its obsession. For example, we had a show, there was a movie at the time called uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy. So we did a show called The Little Gods Must Be Crazy, talking about uh, the televangelists. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because they were, the, there was a time when, you know, Paul Crouch and many others were claiming to be little gods and they were. Paul Crouch actually had this one line where it says, I am a little God, critics be gone. And so we addressed some of those themes in the book, The Agony of Deceit. So we talked about those themes on the air and we did shows about uh, false predictions of the second coming, 91 reasons that Christ won't come back in 1991, um, you know, all kinds of fun things like that. the obsession over politics. So in addition to some of those classical Reformation emphases, we also talked about sort of the the silliness of uh, a lot of contemporary evangelical Christianity of that period. Speaking of false teachers, I remember when you had Robert Schuler on your show. Can you please mm-hmm. describe and talk about that interview? <laughs> well, yeah, the Robert Schuler interview is uh, is one of those um, moments that is hard to forget because it was so strange and odd it was in some ways it if you was. listen to that episode it's kind of like radio theater um we, we we asked we asked kkla uh if we can get a second hour um because it was going to be an important interview and they gave it to us so we had two hours uh with robert Schuler, who uh came because of a mutual friend who happened to be uh one of the higher donors so he had an interest to come because the, his donor friend said, hey, you know, why don't you come to this show, The White Horse Inn? And there was a little bit of a gotcha thing going on. We, we were, um, you know, we wanted to have him answer for the things he'd written, but we didn't sort of tell him this is going to be uh, a confrontational interview. So in hindsight, I think we could have done better on that end. But uh, he was evasive in the interview, denied the things right. that he'd actually written. He said, I've never wrote such things when he actually did. Mike was quoting his materials and it just got awkward. And at one point he, he ended up walking out of the studio. Then he actually left the studio looking for me. Cause he was, uh, he, he was, uh, looking, asking for me because I was the one that had my name on the letter and inviting <laughs> him to the studio and he wanted to talk to me about something. I'm kind of hiding in the call room. <laughs> I didn't want to talk to him. I was kind of like ducking. Uh, we can talk later. Um, and then, uh, for some reason, something he heard the hosts talking about, uh, when in his absence, after they came back from the break, he, he said, oh, I agree with that. So he opens the door and he says, I believe that. And he sits back down and then we continue for the next two, next one, an hour longer. It was just so <laughs> bizarre. 
<laughs> and it was uh, one of those things where, I mean, and the callers of that program really make the show because you have some adoring fans who just love Robert Schuller and others who were just, mm-hmm. oh, this makes me vomit. And it was just, you know, so again, it's just it's radio theater that you just have to listen to to believe. I have kind of a, a bigger and greater question for you in regard to your mission and your vision for the White Horse and why did the show and ministry start in the first place? Why do we need a new Reformation? Yeah, so uh, over the years, we've talked to a lot of thinkers. And um, one of the thinkers that, uh, that I, I like to quote a lot is Mark Knoll, who actually says that the, the theology in the, medieval Reform- in, the, in the medieval church before the Reformation was not quite as Pelagian as contemporary Protestants are today. It's we're actually more Pelagian, and you know, it's a fancy word for works-oriented salvation. Mm-hmm. That was Michael Horton's experience. He, mm-hmm. you know, was raised in one of these kind of Arminian slash Pelagian uh, places where he started uh, reading through the Book of Romans and saying, "This is different from what I'm hearing at church." And he started asking uh, his own. Bible teachers about these things, and they called him a Calvinist. He didn't know who Calvin was. <laughs> He's just reading Paul in the book of Romans. And um, it, sometimes uh, he was disciplined for mm-hmm. uh, for even asking questions. So that strain of uh, sort of ask Jesus into your heart, do your best. Uh, there were times when I've done uh, street interviews, and I ask people, you know, what do you think this, you know, what do you think that Paul means when he talks about this doctrine of justification? What is what is this word that he brings up a lot in his epistles? What does it even mean? And I mean, I've gotten more than once. Well, we need to justify ourselves on earth if we want uh, here on earth if we want to be accepted at the rapture. I mean, that is that's what Noel is talking about. That's a very the Rome the Roman Catholic Church didn't believe in that. It was more of like a cooperation. They believed. Uh, if you look at the official documents of Rome, it 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 is a it's a doctrine of grace, but it's grace mediated through these you know uh, means by which you have to cooperate. Well, the, in in many ways, American Protestants, certain strains of American Protestantism, are much more Pelagian. This is also something that Roger Olson says, the Arminian theologian. He says the same thing. It's it's actually more Pelagian mm-hmm. than we even realize. Right. And he wants to recover semi-Pelagianism because <laughs> he's an Arminian. Right. So I've asked this question to a previous guest, and I want to ask you the same question. Is semi-Pelagianism a semi-heresy? Here's basically the way uh, we go at it. Our People in our tradition, uh, broad Reformation tradition, uh, you're going to get different answers to this, but br- the biggest answer would be that it's not a heresy, but it's, a, it's a, an error close to the foundation. So that it's one of those errors, like if you have a, a, a crack at the foundation of your house, it could widen and spread to the point where you're going to have problems soon. And that's typically what you see with Arminian semi-Pelagian ideas. Over time, they quickly uh, make things, uh, they hollow things out over time. So I do mm-hmm. believe that we will see a lot of Arminians and semi-Pelagians and semi-Augustinians and Augustinians in heaven. Right. But I do think that um, once you a- adopt the assumptions of Arminianism, that the, the, it's the, what's down the road 
you know, the, the next layer of assumptions, the, the next level of assumptions and, you know, going down beyond the line to the next few generations, it gets really kind of thin. Right. If I'm not mistaken, I think that semi-Pelagianism was actually condemned at the Council of Orange. Council of Orange makes very clear that semi-Pelagianism, uh, it's, it's a very Augustinian document. And um, uh, the, I mean, even to the point it says, uh, if anyone says that he is saved by praying a prayer, uh, let him be anathema. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that document, that council... Uh, was it sort of went missing? People forgot about it. So at the time of the Reformation, nobody ever quotes and in and interacts with that document. And if Luther and Calvin had that, they would have had um, you know a lot of uh, ammunition on their side. We're going back to the to the, the Council of Orange. This is all we're arguing, but uh, that's not something that they ever appealed to because apparently it had gone missing. Hmm. Interesting. Well, in, in addition to the semi-Pelagianism, I believe Mike Horton keeps um, pushing the point in, uh, regarding uh, Charles Finney and that not only is he semi-Pelagian, he's actually Pelagian right. in his theology. So, and you know, Finney is a huge influence upon the evangelical world today. And I, I, that was really eye-opening for me when, I, when he read off a lot of uh, the quotes from Finney and um, to see how that type of influence is, uh, moved so rapidly across the... Um, you know, the evangelical world, it's, um, um, it, it confirmed to me that, uh, what we were talking about just now in regards to semi-Pelagianism that, like you said, it's that little crack in the, mm-hmm. in the foundation and it, it can spread. And, uh, when Finney states things like, uh, it's, you have to, you know, you have to approach, uh, the, the person and you have to convince them or influence them to believe some kind of approach like that rather than, and, and denying the fact that the Holy spirit needs to, uh, cause a transformation in their heart. Um, I mean, I see that rampant right now in the evangelical world. Um, Yeah. His, his language was uh, excitement sufficient to, to induce conversion and that it's not a supernatural miracle. It's, and it's the scientific result of the right use of means. So, yeah, you're denying the Holy Spirit's regenerating power. You're you're focusing on the excitement sufficient sufficient to induce conversion. Well, that's that creates. It starts with the revivalism, but it ends up you know being what we you and I experienced in the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, Matthew, uh, was it Matthew or was it you? And it was in the Calvary Chapel movement. I forget. Yeah, Matthew. yeah, it was and, me. And with was altar Matt. calls, yeah. and with you know, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and they don't quite tell you that even though you know, if you raise your hand now, they want you to come up. It's this sort of manipulation, exactly, that is not trusting mm-hmm. uh, the work of the Spirit to work through His Word, and that is uh, that ends up also becoming the church growth movement, where it's it's sort of the manipulation of the environment. Um, I've heard of churches where they have uh, they plant people who come up. Uh, for baptism, and you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the manipulation of crowd control. So you have um, right this. There's a, something that's exciting happening. I'm gonna I'm gonna join because I've seen 50 people go up, but the first 49 that went up were you know plants. Exactly. If someone is truly regenerated, if the Lord truly saves someone, they will cry out on their own, whether it's in their bedroom or whether it's sitting in the pew. They will cry out. In their hearts right. to the Lord. Yeah, amen. 
Yeah, and that's what you find throughout the book of Acts. It's a faith as a gift. Repentance is a gift. And uh, the faith and repentance are a, a reaction to the, the word doing its work. Amen. Yeah, amen. So in, along the same lines, then, we have, uh, we spoke about how some topics in the beginning and throughout the White Horse Inn uh, broadcast were about guilt, grace, gratitude, about the indicatives and the imperatives. Um, so the, and I think, cause learning more about that and that was, I've been learning these thing, these concepts, these reform concepts for a few years now. So, and I see why those are important to understand because now that removes the concept of pietism. So it's no longer a, a something that you, your, your salvation is something that you are, you were, you once had guilt, grace came upon you, and now you have gratitude, and that's pretty much the Christian life. But what's being yeah. espoused now as the Christian life is uh, the that the saint needs to constantly um, endure. Well, I mean, we endure because we have the conflict with the spirit and the flesh, but it's the con- constant in- improvement of your life that is necessary rather than the resting mm-hmm. in Christ. And it's an improvement that's sort of not rooted in Christ. It's sort of like when you read the Bible, it's uh, it's the direct application to you. There is, here is uh, this character, maybe it's the Old Testament, and uh, how do I emulate this? And Whereas we, we say, no, let's follow the model we find in John chapter 5, where Jesus says he is the major subject of Scripture, uh, he's the ultimate prophet, the one who speaks the words of God. He's the ultimate priest, the one who mediates. He's the ultimate king, the one who rules. Not only that, but he's the ultimate, not just the ultimate priest, he's the ultimate sacrifice. He's not just the ultimate prophet, he's the one who hears God's word for us. He's He speaks God's word, he hears God's word. He's the ultimate obedient subject, so he's the king and subject. So the whole Bible is sort of fulfilled in him, and once you see that paradigm shift, that Christ is the is what the Bible is about. You find your place in Christ, not uh, is sort of like uh, you know having your best life now by fulfilling these biblical principles. So there there are biblical principles, but it's right. we read it in light of all that Christ, who Christ is, and what He came to do. Amen. Yeah, amen. And so that was uh, most applicable to me because it affected the way I thought of my sanctification. And then I, th- yeah, and I think uh, right. a lot of, a lot of saints out there, probably have um, my previous understanding of sanctification being synergistic, rather than monergistic with the the spirit and the Christ, changing uh, changing me rather than me working with, the spirit to change me, so that yeah. that, that that created in, in me a, just a whole new perspective on the Christian life, and it was freeing in many ways. That's great. Well, that's actually one of the reasons we created the format of the show that we did. You know, this wasn't just the Michael Horton show. This was a kind of a roundtable format with mm-hmm. people from various traditions. So we, uh, the you know, really early on, we were talking with Lutherans and with Baptists and Reformed, Presbyterian, and occasional Anglicans. This was um, because we, we were talking to those who shared in that crucial idea there of monergism, of God alone doing the saving. And we can talk about our differences, but the but we have this huge bond there that 
this is this is a doctrine of grace, grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. That's the heart of kind of like the the foundation upon which we we were standing. Those core Reformation ideas. I kind of wanted to pick up on this idea of monergistic salvation. Today we're dealing with the New Calvinism movement, and there are still a lot of teachers who are entrenched in the doctrines of lordship salvation and two-stage views of salvation. And I know that you guys have touched on lordship salvation and some of these issues in the past. Do you think there's been any progress made when it comes to these issues, or do you think the same mistakes are being made over and over again? Yeah, I think there is. There's always a, a tendency to confuse law and gospel in uh, major sections of uh, evangelical Christianity, conservative Christianity. So even though you can have a um, a person like John MacArthur who is uh, in some respects monergistic uh, and likes to talk about mm-hmm. grace, he it, he did say in some of his writings that um, you first have to count the cost uh, and submit to the gospel. And he presented the gospel as this demanding thing. Right. And so a good example would be the uh, rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he, the Jesus says, uh, well, here's what you have to do. You know, good teacher, what do I have to do? Well, have, have, you, read the ten- have you read the commandments? <laughs> yeah. Yes, those I've kept from my youth. So... MacArthur's reading of that in this is our critique was basically Jesus is telling him to count the cost. This is the cost of the gospel. And our response was, no, he was giving him the law. Right. <laughs> um, he was he was saying, look at the law. This is what it this is what it means. He 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 had the opportunity. If you just compare, if you look in your Bible, look at John chapter four. You know, John chapter four, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. He doesn't give any of anything like this. Here's a woman who has had seven husbands. She's living with somebody else now, and she is a Samaritan. And he just says, "Hey, if you would have asked me, I would have given you uh, eternal, you know, the water of eternal life." And then he, you know, it's just this free grace, no, 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 uh, no attachments, no, uh, no sign at the bottom line. There's, you know, all these little different addendum to the contract. Mm-hmm. Just free grace. He doesn't do that with a rich young ruler, and I think it's because of what he told, um, what he what he said in some parts of the gospel, where it's like the, the he did not I did not come for those who are well, mm-hmm. but for the sick. The, the those who are well have no need of a physician. He came for the sick. So the ones who were excluded, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, the tax collectors, those are the ones who get grace. The rich young ruler, he's preaching law. Uh, You've you've heard what the law says, and uh, he's he is not, and and, the, and it turns out the man went away sad. That's what the law usually does. Yes, <laughs> the law makes you go go walk away sad. Absolutely. And there are a lot of people who confuse these things, and so yeah, there will always be a stream until we get more clarity uh, across the board. Thankfully, there have been people recovering these things. The Gospel Coalition, I think, has done a good job of helping people to recover these things. Uh. There are uh, a lot of issues in the Gospel Coalition is so broad, though. It, yep. The question is, what's the center of it? But that is something that they have talked about. Uh, but there are still a lot of sections of American Christianity. I will, I occasionally go into mega churches and other churches uh, just to kind of 
remind myself what other <laughs> other places are like, and I regularly hear these kinds of things being confused. Absolutely. And we thank you so much for the clarity that you guys have given us. You know, Onig and I would not be here if it wasn't for you guys, to be honest with you, um, and great. others who we've learned from who learned from you originally. Um, I've only been, to be honest with you, fully reformed um, for about three, four years now. Um, I was into New Covenant theology before I came huh. to Reformed theology. Um, I listened mm. to the White Horse Inn years ago, and I was a Calvinist, so I loved you guys for that, but I just didn't buy into the covenantal views at that time. Yeah, yeah. But thank God, yeah. thank God the Lord drew me, right, <laughs> into, into the <laughs> doctrines of um, covenant theology as well. So we're, we're very thankful. Yeah, understanding the covenants. I was just in Italy like last year. In fact, we're going to be airing a, a show that I recorded last year, but I had to hold off because of for COVID mm-hmm. reasons. Uh, it's being aired a, a year later. It comes coming up at the end of uh, this month. But uh, I, I talked with a number of people there who were, were you know, it, it, with broken English are talking about the Bible sort of now begins to make sense now that I've read covenant theology. And this idea of the contrasting the covenants, right now I'm reading a book by T. David Gordon called Promise, Law, Faith. Great. It's a wonderful book on the uh, uh, unpacking the, the covenants that you find in the book of Galatians, for example. A um, little bit of a technical book. There are some places in Greek that aren't translated, so just be aware. Uh, it's not for beginners. But the key idea in this book is that law promise and faith, the way Paul uses them in that epistle, are basically synecdoches or parts for the whole. Like when you say, nice set of wheels, and you're referring to the whole car, not mm-hmm. the wheels. So law, in his view, when Paul uses that word in Galatians, is kind of a shorthand for saying the Sinai covenant. And promise is a shorthand way of saying the Abrahamic covenant. Mm-hmm. And faith is a shorthand for saying the new covenant. This is why when he says like, until faith came, wait, I thought Abraham had faith way back then, or didn't anybody have faith? But he's saying until faith came in the new covenant, he's talking about faith in this ultimate coming of the new covenant promise. It's this, so basically, you know, and he says, you know, there these are two covenants when he contrasts Hagar and Sarah, and then there's another contrast with the new covenant. So he talks about all these different kinds of covenants, but he makes clear distinctions. So once you understand that, that here this old covenant in the time of Moses, it didn't actually ever give anyone comfort or peace. It just made them uh, slaves, and it sent them away into exile and put them under this sort of um, this law that they could never fulfill. But it was ultimately waiting the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Mm-hmm. And that Abrahamic promise had different components. Like what the last component was, and it will be a blessing to the all the nations. Well, Sinai... The Sinai Covenant was not a blessing to all the nations. It excluded the nations, and it said, you know, go kill those surrounding nations. Right. So it was kind of like on pause, uh, and then when the New Covenant comes, now the the one who fulfills all righteousness is now the one who's proclaimed to the nations, and that's where the Abrahamic f- promise is now fulfilled in Christ. Beautiful. Yeah. So um, going back to the show in uh, the Whitehurst Inn, so that the cast of characters on that show, it's just the, their interaction was uh, remarkable. I just love the way they 
they interacted with each other. So what was it like working with Horton, Riddlebarger, Jones, Rosenblatt? Was it like herding cats or <laughs> something different? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Herding cats actually is preferable to herding theologians. Uh, It's in some ways, yes. There were times in which uh, on live radio, you would have something that made Mike Horton just kind of lose it. And he's turning red, trying not to laugh. And that makes it worse. And he's, he, you know, kind of collapses on the floor. And then Rod is kind of, you know, Kim Riddlebarger is trying to pick up the pieces and he's talking with a broken voice because he's trying not to laugh. <laughs> we get calls like, oh, I was just so touched by Kim's thing when he was he was trying not to cry. And we're like, nope, he was trying not to laugh out loud. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then just there. Yeah. It's there were times in which um, especially in the uh, the live days where uh, you get a crazy call and uh, it it. There were just uh, so many of those kind of moments. We had we we also had a, an impersonator who would come on in uh, during these like year end specials, and mm-hmm. this particular impersonator we had, his name was uh, Steve Bridges. He he went on to do work for you know Jay Leno and others. He used to dress up like George W. Bush and do a fat fantastic impersonation. <laughs> he got famous for doing that until he died about That's a awesome. decade ago. But uh, oh, but no. in the early days, he was Mike's roommate in college. And so we br- we would bring him on, and he would impersonate just beautifully all these famous theologians and and evangelists and radio personalities. So he did Billy Graham and Pat Robertson and James Dobson, and uh, then presidents. So he, we'd have these year end specials where we kept getting calls from all these famous people, <laughs> and uh, and that was just it was it was laugh out loud funny because it was just spontaneous and raw. We in those days we were kind of like. This just this whole thing just needs to be bulldozed. So we were a little rough and raw. Yep. In hindsight, I think some of the, what we did was a little sophomoric. Uh, you know, you you kind of I kind of cringe at some of the things we did in those days. But we were we were <laughs> okay. sort of saying, look, it's just silly nonsense. Let's get to the heart of the matter. And uh, as you get older, you say, okay, maybe that was a little brash. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. I remember when a caller. <laughs> called you guys and they were talking about Rod because, you know, he kind of has a raspy voice and they called him Crunchy Man. I'll never forget that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Crunchy Man. We call you Crunchy Man. (laughs) And then there was a time, too, like when one caller called in and said, oh, and Shane, you're great, man. We love the music you play. And then Mike said, said, uh, oh, that's like three fans now, Shane. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he just spontaneously would just humble me. They're always picking on uh, Rod and uh, just uh, commenting on his age and but right. You know, when, when he went to seminary, how the dinosaurs roamed the earth, right? Like <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and he was the caring nurturer, and yeah, and we we had one year we surprised Rod. We didn't tell him we were doing this, but we had an entire thing produced for the Dad Rod Christmas special, <laughs> and so we had all this strange music and all these the announcer voices even coming you're listening to the dad rod christmas special and (laughs) and he was just you know he would moan and uh may have used a few expletives and things uh you know that we had to bleep but (laughs) it was so it was just one of those things where we was we were crazy in those days that's great good times (laughs) so um now, you uh, also are the editor for the Modern Reformation magazine as well, 
Is that correct? Oh, before I talk about the modern, the MR thing, I do have to say one thing about the following up on the Dad Rod mm-hmm. Christmas special. Michael Horton went to okay. Oxford. And uh, so we had, there were times in which we had other hosts like him or someone else filling in the main host's seat. Mm-hmm. And there was one time when uh, Rod wanted to get Mike back for the for surprising him with that special. And so he, there was one time when uh, there were three Lutherans around the table and there weren't any, you know, reformed people at all. So that was just, so they asked if they could uh, have my help to get back at Mike. And uh, so Mike was listening to the shows in Oxford via tape to see how, you know, so I would send him the tape. So after we recorded the broadcast, we recorded a fake broadcast. And it was, it started out with the same way, but slowly descended. All the Lutherans began to talk about all the problems in the, in the world were because of John Calvin. <laughs> oh no. And so it just, it's, it was subtle, you know, it's just like, and then it, they started the show that they actually did, but then they kind of changed it a little bit. And then, and I t- edited that into the show and I sent him that version of it. And Mike said, he listened to the show and, and at one point <laughs> he just, ejected the tape out of the thing and threw it across the room and he, <laughs> he he called me up and said what did you guys do and i said you've been had <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome that's really cool <laughs> so, modern reformation yeah so uh yeah, that so, was uh, that was a, go ahead and ask your question about it no no i was gonna say uh yeah, so you are you the editor of the modern Refor- reformation magazine at what position do you hold so right now I'm just one of the uh, occasional team of writers. Uh, I have been, I've filled every position. Uh, I have uh, been the designer. I've been the managing editor. I've been a uh, writer. I've been uh, one of the editors. And uh, at this point, I'm just kind of uh, more focused on the white horse inside. But uh, in the early days, we were, you know, kind of trying to figure out you know, way back in the days when desktop publishing was kind of a new thing, you know, so I was, I was in, um, you know, still in college when, uh, I'm beginning, you know, to create this nonprofit organization. And, uh, on Sundays we're doing the live show and I was also trying to get the, change the magazine from a change modern reformation from a newsletter to a magazine trying to learn how to do this on my own. So I'm reading up on magazines, you know, the difference between PageMaker and Cork Express. And I was actually, in those days, early 90s, it was sort of like uh, laptops were still rare in class. So I would be working on the design of Modern Ref in the college class where the professor thought I was taking notes, but <laughs> I'm just getting two things done at once. I'm working full-time, going to school full-time, creating this nonprofit, and somehow I... I managed to get a uh, court a girl and have her marry me in that time. I don't know how I did all this. Uh, I was very productive in those years. Impressive, very impressive. That's great. <laughs> so, so I uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say uh, the uh, so in addition to Modern Reformation magazine, uh, uh, do you have any um, do you have any work in uh, core Christianity? Uh, just on the sort of the creational side of things, you know, we, we, for a long time, we're talking about creating a daily radio. So I was one of the creators, uh, of the, the ideas that went into it. And, uh, I did some, uh, of the, you know, work in terms of, uh, outlining what kinds of 
uh, aspects of the show. I helped pick the guy who was there, uh, Adriel Sanchez. He was one of the guys that that I, I you know I would go around selecting, especially once uh, the the original panel started to break up. Uh, you know, Ken moved off to Miami and. And then it also became harder to have Kim and Rod down because we would record in these recording sessions and they were only available for one day out of the two that I wanted to record. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start mixing the panel up, and which I actually liked because you get different voices in the mix. And Adriel was the one that I tapped and asked, would you be a part of this? And uh, after having him be, you know, one of the, the guys on the panel for three or four or five years, you know, when it came to having a conversation partner with Mike, you know, that was one of the the go-to guys. He's in San Diego and he's, he's a guy that's articulate and pastoral. So, uh, I was pushing him forward and then it turned out that after time, uh, one of the goals for the core show was to have, um, to have a daily presence. That's actually not an interaction with, um, with voicemails, but actually live people. And as a result of that, the with the goal being actual conversation, we had to to make the decision. Well, what's the value? Uh, we you know Mike can't do that. He's a full time seminary professor. He can't do daily radio in that way. He can do recording sessions on one day, but uh, we made the decision that we were just going to have, especially because evangelical radio. Mike's not a name in that world, mm-hmm. so he's a name for us and in the in the reformed world. But right. we're trying to take Reformation theology out to the to the uh, to everyone listening to evangelical Christian radio. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, we said, okay, let's let's just do live radio where we talk to people and have actual conversation. And so we're about to make that shift now, oh, just wow. a month or two, where um, Adriel has been doing the show by himself and he's been doing a great job. But he's about to uh, do daily radio where he's actually talking to actual people live. That's fantastic. Wonderful. I actually just met Adriel for the first time. Um, in Jacksonville, Florida, um, I know that, w- ah. yeah, there was a fundraiser for the white horse Inn yeah. recently there. And I was actually visiting my friend, um, and pastor, Dr. John Fonville and, ah. uh, and they were all at church there on Sunday. Mike Horton was speaking and, uh, Ken Jones was there and, um, yeah, but he's a great pick. I think Adriel's a, a great choice. We, we kind of talked about the, the difference between our the old way of doing things. We were a band, but now we're producers. So, uh, and that's mm-hmm. where it's like Adriel and Core is like, now we, the old panel, are kind of producing and tapping the next generation to go do this. And that's where we think Adriel's a great guy to, to he's a great band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So I was going to ask you about Mike Horton's book, Christless Christianity. I know that you guys had Christian Smith on the show oh, yeah. quite a few times, mm-hmm. I think, that's on, the, on the topic of moralistic therapeutic deism, right? Yep. Do you find that that's still a pertinent topic today, that it it's still is important um, in addressing our current culture in the church? Yes. Uh, I just talked to Brett Kunkel about this, actually. Um couple months ago i had him on the show and he does a lot of work uh you know in youth ministry and dealing with youth and teaching youth pastors and parents to how to deal with youth and he i asked him the question do you think that this has gotten any better christian smith wrote his uh first book soul searching for oxford university press back in 2005 and uh, so that's 15 years ago now and he said no if anything i think it's gotten worse 
So the whole category of moralistic therapeutic deism, what you're seeing is, you know, and this is also reflected in the stats you see about the rise of the nuns. Yep. So people wow. uh, who who kind of have this kind of vague general sense of God, they don't sort of, they're, they're not a- able to make it through uh, that transition from being in this family that may go to church once or twice a month and, you know, praying only when you need that thing. It's the therapeutic side of things, the deistic side of things. And to when you go to you go off to college and you uh, meet actual, you know, <laughs> uh, people from a whole a huge variety of religions and faiths, and especially with the secularization and the people who, talk about the Bible being mythology, that you're just not able to hold on to the faith. So you're seeing, you know, 60 to 80% of the people mm-hmm. falling away and they don't come back. So his, his influence really led to Mike Horton writing the book, Christless Christianity, correct? Uh, yes, I think he was one of the influences. The other yeah. was Joel Osteen. Uh, people were recommending that you read uh, Joel's work. And uh, he he did actually he read um, uh, your best life now and he was amazed at how bad it was theologically Pelagian to the core and uh, he said this had to be addressed this is uh, this is the kind of thing that is you know shaping an entire generation this false gospel and it has to be countered and so uh, it was one of those projects that. Uh, I think it will be probably the book that he has written that has the most mass appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Core Christianity right. is, is attempting to do that, but that's more on the positive yep. side. This is a critique that I think has the most mass appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's also the one that um, there's a very clear contrast between the shallow, um, frothy kinds of forms of spirituality v- with uh, what is clear historic Christianity. So I think it's a good book to give to someone who may not be uh, familiar with any of the terms in Reformation theology, uh, but it would certainly help them to understand the difference between shallow, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, prosperity gospel kinds of uh, thoughts versus more historic Christian concerns. So I often think about, you know, when I listen to your show about all the guests that you've had on, um, and I was going to ask you what your favorite or who were your favorite guests on the show throughout your time, um, especially on the radio in the radio days. Um, I, I remember um, Edmund P. Clowney. He was one of my favorite guests you guys had on. I thought he was mm, really interesting. Yeah, yeah Clowney was um, a, a fascinating guy to hang out with uh, before and after the show. He just was... Uh, a godly man who knew the Bible so well, making these connections um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was just uh, just amazing being a fly on the wall, mm-hmm. sitting uh, at what we then called the Cure House, just listening to him talk. And yeah, those shows were special. Uh, some of my favorites would be R.C. Sproul. Uh, whenever we had the opportunity to uh, hang out with R.C., it was always magic because he's such a dynamic mm-hmm. person. Um Christian Smith, uh, I, I had a number of times uh, where I, I interviewed him myself on, a, some, on occasion, and I was always really sort of, uh, I always thought his work was really illuminating. 
because it's not just the sociology, but it's also diagnosing what's wrong. It's not just here's what the kids are saying, but here's what the kids have been taught. Here's what our American churches are teaching them. And here's the problem with the way they're teaching them and the, and the stuff we're teaching them. It's just very eye-opening. He's such a clear communicator. I've always really uh, come away from those uh, those interviews, just uh, especially uh, reflecting on what a clear thinker he has been, even though he did eventually uh, convert to Roman Catholicism. We talked to him about that oh, wow. as well. Um, another, yeah, there was a show we did in mm, maybe seven or eight years ago, maybe even as many as nine years ago, uh, where we, it's, uh, the show title, if you look in the archives is, uh, is it time to, shall we reject or reform? Anyway, so we interviewed him about his conversion. He wrote a book called 95 Reasons, uh, Why a Committed Evangelical Became a Roman Catholic or something to that effect. And, um, his own 95 theses. And so we kind of, listened to his critique a lot of it was sociological but some of it was theological and um so i think uh who's another one you know i i just interviewed oz guinness i've always appreciated the times mm -hmm. when um we've had him on the show he's a thoughtful social critic and and uh sociologist and a person who knows his bible uh i just interviewed him it, th these programs will air in october um no sorry in they, these programs will air in November, and it's the focus is on his the book that he the, the very first book that he wrote, the Dust of Death. It's just been re released in a in a new edition by University Press, and I'd Great. never read it. And this book is basically his. It's related to the '60s counterculture, um, and he kind of talks about the new left, and he talks about violence and the. He, he predicts things that are going to happen. A lot of the stuff he wrote about in 50, almost 50 years ago actually ended up coming true. He actually talks about the internet in that book, but he doesn't call it the internet. He calls it the world box. And, uh, and he, I mean, it's, it's amazing the kind of things he talks about there. And he was right on target. A few things he got wrong, like he wondered whether there would be lunar bases on the moon by 1975. That didn't come true. <laughs> uh, but a lot of things that he talked about in that book really were spot on. And he, and he also talks about all the violence that was happening there in the late 60s that apply to us today. Mm -hmm. But the main thing he keeps on talking about in that book is just this, uh, the, the, the sort of assumptions of hard leftist Marxist ideology that's become more, um, that's become more popular in our time and how Christian ideas and Christian assumptions are kind of waning and what are the implications of that? And, what we're seeing is it's the implications mm -hmm. are disastrous. Well, we thank you, Shane, for coming on the show. It's been great having you. It's been such a blessing and it's such an interesting topic to be discussing the white horse in. We kind of all stand on your shoulders. In fact, I would, I think I speak for all reform podcasts out there that we wouldn't be around if it wasn't for you guys. We thank you so much. Well, we were on the air before it was a podcast. It was a, it was actually a broadcast that we, you know, so we, we go way, way back. So, and I actually struggle with it sometimes because in some ways we're a podcast in other ways we're a broadcast. We're still on 70 uh -huh. stations across the country. We're even on a station in the Philippines, which is cool because this is like, uh, it's one of these 
NPR classical music stations in the in Manila, and and yet on Sundays that station in that country plays religious broadcasting, and they so they play the White Horse Inn. But we get weird, you know, questions from uh, people listening in that station. But yeah, we're we've been in this for a while, but we have, uh, you know, over the years we've we realized that. I mean, I, we were talking with um, uh, what's his name. Um, Russell Moore. We were talking. I was talking with Russell Moore okay. yep. um, at at a conference about a year ago, and he was telling me how he was listening to the White Horse Inn on cassette tape, and while he was in the seminary, and that we had a huge impact yep. on his life and his thinking. <laughs> and he remembers the shoot the Robert Schuler interview more than anything, and how he thought it was it was disturbing and hilarious and all these kind of things. And so we were, you know, it's weird having that kind of a you know, an impact, you know, the fact that the White Horse Inn has been on for so long, we've influenced a lot of people. And that's, that's kind of great to hear. Yep. So where can people reach you? So if people are not familiar with the White Horse Inn, just head to whitehorseinn.org, whitehorseinn.org, where you can actually listen to the show. You can listen to some of our classic episodes. We make some of them free and others you have to subscribe, you know, give us an email and you get 12 weeks. And if you want to become a uh, a supporter of the show, then you can open up the archive. <laughs> Great. And Odig, where can people reach us? People can reach us um, with two, two email addresses, uh, back to the reformation at gmail.com. Also info at bttrmin.org. Our podcast is on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and also on YouTube. Excellent. Well, that wraps up another episode, and you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. We hope you join us again next time. See ya.